Talking Trek to you, where an expert and a noob boldly go through Star Trek episode by episode. My name is JG McQuarrie, and I'm here with my co-host, Kev Kozer. Say hi, Kev. Hi. How are you doing this week? All right. Well, I think as long as our podcast stays out of the neutral zone, we shouldn't attract any um, fire from em- enemy combatants. Fingers, fingers <laughs> crossed, and we, we definitely don't want this episode to vanish behind a, a cloaking field. But for the time being, we can say with great confidence and happiness that we are going to be talking about Balance of Terror this week. And as always, we're not doing it alone. So say hello, Chris. Hi. Hello. Doing Doing well. How are you both doing? Doing excellent. Thank you. And thank you for joining us on our our Balance of Terror episode. Of course. Oh, no. When the call went out for for guests on this show, I think I must have been like, we did like five minutes to Kev. Is Balance right. of Terror available? <laughs> like, just <laughs> immediately. I think outside of our, like, we reached out to our previous Talking Who guests first, mm-hmm. as a courtesy. I think you were the mm-hmm. first person to respond to the open call. <laughs> I think you were snatched <laughs> up literally within seconds. Yeah. My memory serves. Uh, you've chosen mm-hmm. this episode, which I, I guess I guess says something uh, in and, and of itself. But as as we always do at the top of the show, we ask our we ask our guests to give us a little bit of information about themselves and what their kind of history and relationship to Star Trek is. So so what's yours? How did you how did you come to Star Trek and um, and how 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 big a fan are you? Well, um, you know, it was like I think it was like an early uh, watch for me because my mom was a really big uh trek fan like next gen was i think a big show in our household growing up it wasn't like it was um you know uh sort of weekly everyone sits down and watches it show but it definitely was very much uh in the rotation i actually had a poster of the enterprise d up in my room along with uh star wars and 2001 posters so i mean we were a sci-fi household but like next gen was sort of an early show um and then i did sort of fall off trek for a while but then sort of got back into it in the, the 2010s and when star trek beyond was coming out i was like you know i've never gone through um the original series so i should i should do that and i i started going through it and you know there's good episodes and but even in sort of the good episode the early sort of good episodes there's stuff that was like oh this is good but it's definitely dated mm-hmm. until i got to this episode it was like and it was like oh this could have been written yesterday <laughs> like <laughs> This fully holds up in every regard. <laughs> and it sort of just stuck in my mind ever since then. It's like, this is just capital letter letters, great 
television. Fantastic. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't think any of you are going to be particularly surprised by uh, our relationship to this episode and, and what we think of it. But let's let's go through our normal motions anyway, shall we? Um, Kev, <laughs> would you would you care to give us a summary of one of the best known episodes of television that has ever been broadcast? Of course. <laughs> uh, the uh, Captain Kirk officiating a wedding is interrupted by uh, news that the sort of Earth outposts they're approaching uh, for some sort of mission or other are falling away one by one. Communications are disappearing. Um, he is briefed that the outposts are near the Romulan neutral zone, and it becomes very quickly that the Romulans, an enemy that the Earth has never had face-to-face contact with, are taking them out one by one. Uh, they get some video of the Romulans, and it turns out they look like Spock, which, to the consternation of one uh, Lieutenant Stiles, who begins to suspect Spock is a spy. A lot of cat-and-mouse stuff ensues. A very chess game-like maneuvers happen between the uh, Enterprise and the Romulan ship, um, eventually culminating in the Romulans using like a devastating... Uh, like nuclear weapon amid some debris. Um, the blast dis- uh, shakes Enterprise a lot. Styles is badly injured, but Spock saves him, turning him around. Meanwhile, uh, Lieutenant Tomlinson, who was the groom and the wedding in the cold open, uh, perishes. And uh, the Enterprise is able to defeat the Romulan ship. And they, after offering a life rest, a lifeboat rescue, they refuse. And so the episode ends on this sort of melancholy note with the enemy defeated, but also with uh, Ensign Martine widowed. Fantastic. Thank you very much. Well, like I said, this is not an under-discussed episode of television, and it's always uh, <laughs> it's always to come up against an episode of this to try and find uh, both something original to say about it and not to just run out of adjectives, which means great. Um, but, you know, let's let's give it a go anyway. Let's uh, Let's start with you, Chris. How did you find it? I mean, starts off. I mean, the episode starts off strong because all of us should be so lucky to be escorted down the aisle by Montgomery Scott. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, I think it's a, it's kind of that one of those episodes of television where everything feels on point to the end that they're working towards where writing and the direction and performance all are able to drive towards this sort of singular ideal of these two men, Kirk and the Robulan commander who in a better world would be friends because they understand each other so completely, even without, meeting until the end face to face and both sort of serving ideals that they're sort of not necessarily held to the end when Rand comes in with the message that the Federation supports whatever uh, decision Kirk has to make after everything is done is such a good dark joke at the end of this episode. Um, and Mark Lennard uh, is very well cast here, giving um, 
what feels like a very equivalent performance to Shatner. He has that same kind of Shakespearean quality, but also that way of really showing the character's thought process through his eyes that Shatner does very well in this episode. There's a lot of really great close-up direction, a lot of very great facial acting throughout that all help drive it towards this larger point. Uh, there will be a Shatner corner this episode, and it's going to be an <laughs> Arnstormer of one. <laughs> Can I uh, can hardly argue with that, Kev? You're coming to this fresh, so this is this is pretty. This is I'm right in saying this is the first time you've ever seen this, right? right. So um, yeah, from a, from from the noob perspective, um, how did you find it coming to this episode, given its reputation and given everything that you've seen of Star Trek over the last sort of dozen or so episodes? Uh, the line I've already used elsewhere, but we'll put here for posterity, is this is when Star Trek became Star Trek to me. Like, oh, this is it. Like going chronologically this is the moment it all clicks this is what the show can be at its full power it is just it's an incredible episode of television it is exactly everything you want it's so smart the characterization is so strong the acting is incredible um it uses its limitations so well uh it's like very thoughtful in how it's plotted and the ideas it's exploring uh it's using synthesizing influences from other genres into creating this very original story uh, I mean, no surprise that this is basically a submarine movie, <laughs> but at the same time, the sci-fi-ness of it all gives it so many like unique extra points that it can draw on that like just Hunt for Red October could not. Um, yeah, there's just, this is everything you want from the show, everything I expected from the show. And I'm so, it's just reaching its full potential. It's a perfect episode of television. There is, I have no notes no corrections it is just everything is so fine-tuned well you'll be absolutely staggered to discover that i agree with you <laughs> in, in absolutely <laughs> every regard um i i shudder to imagine how often i've seen this episode and yet it never fails to hit the spot and it's a mark of just how good the writing is how good the acting is how good the direction is that i've seen it so often and it still packs a wallop every single time i see it every single thing about this episode is perfect i i mm -hmm. I'm, I'm just gonna i'm gonna run out of adjectives that's i'm just gonna keep coming back to that <laughs> word perfect but it's just perfect i mean I, I, we'll, we'll get to the regular crew in a bit but i mean just right at the top i have to you know i have to mention mark leonard because he is just the mm -hmm. pretty much the best guest star that there is in the series um you know obviously he's going to go on to play sarek but just here he is that the weariness in his performance, the fact that he doesn't play it um, as kind of bullshit, he doesn't play it as kind of aggressive, he plays it with this unbelievable weight on his shoulders the weight of expectation, the weight of experience, the weight of death, the weight of war all this stuff hanging off one person's shoulders whilst he has his last battle with a sorcerer uh, in the other ship. You know, it's an astonishing performance. I, I know that we've had a few good guest stars up to this point, and we will have plenty going forward. But honestly, I'm not convinced, I, out with the regular cast, I'm not convinced that there's a better performance in Star Trek than Mark Leonard here. It's very funny in a way that he gets that big close-up zoom when they get the footage 
when they first get the footage. Uh, I mean, not just because like, what did the Romulans have a cameraman doing that, but also in a way it's like introducing him. It's like, here's a guy who's going to be around in this universe for decades. Trek fans. Here he is. Let's roll out the red carpet for this guy. And yeah, I actually, I love the fact that it's a one and done. I think that adds to the power of it. Like, if like, there's going to be a couple of Klingons that come back from time to time, and that's nice, and it's good to get callbacks or familiarity. But like the fact that the, the Romulan commander—he doesn't even get a name; he's just Romulan commander. Uh, but he's like he's a one and done. I think that adds to the power of it because he is ultimately mm-hmm. defeated. Kirk Kirk wins through, and and his loss is is felt across the episode. You know, he obviously he dies at the end of it, but it, it but it kind of resonates back through it when you see the cat and mouse, when you see the the kind of the intelligence and the, in, in a way, I suppose, also wisdom of the character. He, he's the only one amongst the Romulans that recognizes that the, the you know, that the acts they're engaged in isn't this kind of glorious flag-waving rah-rah-rah for the Praetor, but in fact might just be a pointless, futile waste of everything. Um, and and so his death carries extra punch when, when you come to realize just, just how intelligent the man is even though he's eventually defeated and yeah the fact that it is a, a single character in a single episode he can't come back he can't have a uh part mm-hmm. two or whatever i think i think really adds to the power of it yeah it's i don't know how intentional this is on schneider's part but it's like such a good commentary on like how tragic war can be i mean it must be intentional Actually, because this is all about how it's like both sides mirror each other in so many ways. Um, and it's like Kirk and this captain have so much respect for each other. And it's a tragedy that they will never know each other's names. It's like mm-hmm. this very understated, low-key tragedy. But it's still like uh, like you wish they could be on the same side. Like all great sort of tragic war stories you wish that they could be like on the same side and like have formed a connection, but instead to that each other, they have to make each other faceless in order to sort of do their job. And, and Kirk was, and that's sort of what makes them different is Kirk was willing to make that connection at the end. We'll save your crew. Maybe we'll open the negotiations or something. And the captain refuses. And that's why he is the captain and not a named character because to him, this is, this is it. This is the entirety of his life and what his purpose is. And it's just, it's a very sad point about what sort of, I guess you can't really call it war since this is just a skirmish and didn't really, by nature, didn't really lead to anything bigger, but still just the idea of like fighting an enemy and dehumanizing the enemy. It's that's the tragedy you get along the way. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Like I, I had actually forgotten until this last rewatch that Kirk doesn't even introduce himself in the final scene where they talk. He just sort of he just opens communications with the sort of offer to bring them over. So, yeah, they they truly like never they're always just the captain, the enemy captain to each other. Yeah, um, I'm just realizing that's the only time they talk even. Like, because yeah. the video yeah. Kirk gets is one-sided, and all the other scenes of the Romulan ship are just our third-person omnipresent view, seeing what they're up to. The only time they make any contact is at the very end. Kirk offers the hand of peace, the Romulan rejects it, and it's over. And that is just... And they self-destruct even. They refuse it in the most dramatic way possible. <laughs> um, it's It's so... 
sad but so powerful and again to sort of loop back around to the performance like that that whole line that you know in another in another reality i could have called you friend i mean that's that's become such a a piece of like pop culture legend mm -hmm. everybody knows that line if you've never if you've never seen an episode of star trek you've probably seen that line parodied in a thousand different tv shows you know but it's the power of of the performance that lands mm. that line it, it ought to be a cliche it ought not to work because it's been repeated and repeated and repeated sort of throughout the ages and yet every time i see it and i see mark leonard's performance it just takes my breath away he delivers it so poignantly so meaningfully and this is where that kind of whole you know, this is something that we used to talk about in Doctor Who, but it's definitely the case here as well. It's when it really pays to have these like great stage actors, these great Shakespearean actors in, in TV roles, because it does bring all that drama, all that power. And, you know, obviously the Roman, the Romulans are very explicitly modeled on, on ancient Rome. Obviously we have lots of Julius Caesar influences going on here, all that kind of stuff. But, you know, Mark Leonard is easily a good enough performance that he can you know, a good enough actor that he can he can bring every kind of iota of that kind of Shakespearean tragedy, Shakespearean drama and, and just loss and regret to those final few words. And they still land. And, you know, there's a reason that 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 line has gone down sort of through the ages, through sort of pop culture and, and become become something that people can refer to without even needing any kind of exterior context. And it's really down to the power of his performance. It's absolutely breathtaking. Leonard absolutely fits the mold of all of the best guest stars of the show, where there's this just Shakespearean quality to them of taking everything they're saying so seriously, no matter how ridiculous the context of you're on a spaceship <laughs> and lots of lasers are flying about. There is such a conviction in his performance of like belief and like strength and just fully understanding that this, this will fall apart unless I give it my all and treat this hundred percent seriously, even if it comes off as a little camp, like all the best Trek does mm -hmm. um, it's you, you have to play it straight. You have to look at, you have to look the performance straight down the barrel. And he's like, so convicted it is, is incredible he's just it's an incredibly spellbinding performance mm -hmm. does make me wonder what the normal day-to-day -day on this ship is look looks like is mm -hmm. this is not the uh the fun romulan ship to <laughs> <Yeah>. be on. <laughs> yeah, he's like okay captain we're gonna do uh just some routine maintenance today it's just like oh, war what is <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's 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 definitely uh yeah, I'm guessing crew morale might be an issue there, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> but um you know, I mean we're 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 talking about sort of Shakespearean acting and that means that there's always one kind of name which is lurking in the wings, which obviously is Patrick Stewart. Uh, but uh, with Patrick Stewart, we do see the same process repeating with Mark Leonard. It's and I think Kev you had it exactly right. The word is conviction. It's the ability to put conviction into however ridiculous it is and i suppose with this episode as well 
I mean, obviously, it is just a you know a submarine movie. Um, I say just that's a, that's incredibly unkind. Uh, but you know that that does help as well. It is it's more than familiar. Every this every part of the setup is more than familiar, both to the the people performing and to the sort of viewing public in the nineteen sixties um, as something which is you know readily identifiable. It's a very thin skin between this and and any sort of given World War Two movie, and they really do play that up. You know, like right down to where they're running silent. You know, like everybody whispers as if that makes any difference at all um but you know it, it does add to the drama of it and it does add to that kind of sense that you know we're pulling from from genres that the audience are familiar with so it's it's science fiction enough to be interesting but it's familiar enough that it won't kind of scare the horses and it's a very fine balancing act but again it's another one that the episode just just pulls off without any problem at all and i feel like I, I could be wrong here, but I feel like this codifies in a way that a lot of the best Trek ship combat is submarine based. Like mm-hmm. when you even things like sort of when you're getting to Wrath of Khan or Undiscovered Country and the climaxes of those films, so much of it is about, okay, we can't see the opponent but we know they're out there so now we have to outthink them um versus the dog fighting of star wars or like you know other things being more like naval comp sort of naval battleship combat trek is a submarine combat franchise yeah it's and that's such like a unique spot to take. And I feel like it's almost mm-hmm. they set the challenge up for themselves because submarine combat I feel like is much harder to write than just <laughs> dogfighting combat. Like you have to, it's because it's about captains who are thinking very intentionally about their moves and mm-hmm. um, winning through sort of like this intelligence and logic rather than uh, who can fly the fastest and shoot the fastest. Like this, like I mean, not that you can't have a dogfight with intelligence and logic behind it, but I feel like that is it's when you're a submarine drama is by necessity by necessary by necessity there we go (laughs) slower than a like star wars x-wing or a top gun style shoot em out and if it's slower you need something to capture the audience's attention and that requires patience intelligence um things like of that nature that are the harder qualities to write for that and but i I love that about the show. I mean, it speaks to what Star Trek does at its best, which is the quiet, the patience, and the willingness to like fully explore a topic rather than just come in guns a blazing. Yeah, no, I, I entirely agree. And I think it's really good to see Star Trek drawing on different genres as well. And this is really the first time uh, at this point in the series that it's drawn quite so explicitly from that kind of world war ii movie kind of thing i mean we've had the cliches about wagon trains and stars and we've we've talked we've seen miners and colonies and, and other kind of bits and pieces which would be you know familiar to audiences in the 1960s as, as just part of the background of television and that's fine i don't in any way mean that as criticism but it's also good to see the show starting to spread its wings a bit uh it's starting to really explore what other opportunities are out there and to be able to take something like this and so successfully move that kind of world war two uh paranoia and fear and and move it into a science fiction realm whilst at the same time 
you know, being just incredibly intense and, and you know, engaging and, and, and you know, it's, it's very dramatic. It's, uh, it's just, it's such an achievement. And, and, and to see, that, I mean, yeah, this is, this is the point where Star Trek can go, you know, we're not just a Western or we're not just going to make some big point. It can do those things and it does it very successfully in those episodes, but it can also do so much more. And this is really where so much of that, um, that spreads out. I mean, Kev, you mentioned before about mirroring. And I think that's a very sort of pertinent observation as well, because, you know, the Romulans are in, in a very direct way, you know, an exact mirror of the Vulcans. They are, you know, passion and untempered, uh, you know, they're described as being, uh, deceitful and cruel and everything. So they are, you know, we're, we're already getting kind of that, those kind of mirroring set up, you know, obviously Spock and mirror universes is going to become something of a cliche as, as we move forward. Um, but even this early on, we can see those kind of parallels. And we also see the mirroring between, you know, Spock's kind of complete uh, rejection of prejudice and the extreme prejudice, which comes uh, simply because he looks like the enemy. Um, again, that would be something which is very, you know, very live, a real issue in, in sort of 1960s contemporary America, whether it's the civil rights movement, whether it's things like, you know, uh, Asian Americans being interned during the Second World War, you know, that there's plenty of, there's plenty of kind of um, historical precedent for that. So it's, it's, it's the fact that the episode isn't just able to embrace one of those things, but it's able to embrace a sort of multiplicity of them that really helps to elevate this sort of above and beyond anything we've seen on the show so far. I think it's time to talk about, uh, we've talked about the Romulan commander, and I think it's time to talk about our other commander, uh, Kirk, and <laughs> William Shatner's performance. Oh yeah, that and, guy! Uh, how just uh, absolutely incredible it is. I mean, I think for all the cliches that William Shatner's performing, I think this is, it leans into them while also like surprising you by how it avoids... I don't want to say the worst of it because I love it. William Shatner raises his voice and gets a good scream, hammy scream in. But the <laughs> fact that he like never raises his voice this episode, unless I'm forgetting something and it just keeps it quiet, locked down and intense still, of course, like theatrical and as we love it, but just the, from the moment he gets sort of the radio message that these colonies are just appearing in the middle of that wedding and then puts on a brave face for the wedding, like, like he is in it. Like he like never sort of shifts, never falters. There's more melancholy moments. There's more triumphant moments, but the patina of just the quiet locked in and there's a job to do. I'm going to do it mode just stays there the whole time. It's, he is just intent. Like, the charisma he has to sort of pull off the screen presence in this episode, very few other people could do it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And so much, a, a thing that I found really striking uh, re-watching this episode last night was how much of it plays out in close-up, which is obviously, you know, partially because of limitations on what they can film of course um you can't have some of those like big you can't have the big special effects sequences that say an episode trying to do this story in modern day could perhaps have <laughs> um but instead um it's playing out in close up so you're he's having to do a lot of 
very clear thinking with just his eyes. And you're like, okay, they've matched this chess move. What is the next thing I need to do? And what would be, and what is the next thing he is going to do if I do that? He really has to game things out. And then, as you say, like, he really, this is Kirk fully on the job. This is Kirk at his most professional. He is, it's like, if nothing else, I need to keep the crew calm and focused on doing their jobs. So I am going to be calm and focused. Even when I tell Styles to shut up about <laughs> his prejudice and leave that at the door, even when uh, we're apparently about to be hit by the Romulan secret weapon, I am not going to show panic. I am not going to show anger. I am not going to show anything that I don't need to. It's And that whole facade cracks only twice. There is the incredible scene with him and McCoy as he struggles to think of what to do next. And then there's the incredible ending, which I think I'll hold off on until we maybe get to the end of this episode. But like that, that McCoy scene where he's just like, I think what if I'm wrong is the line and just like, you see the doubt creep in. And like, that's what, that's what elevates Kirk from a great character to a fantastic one. Like not just that he's the competent commander, that he's making all these smart and cool decisions and that we love to follow him and like, just like do the best he can. But then the fact that there is the self doubt that there is the undercutting himself and that he can overcome that and still be the coolest guy. It's, it's so impressive. It's just, that's just, it's basic character 101, I suppose, to give flaws and have them <laughs> overcome them. But just the combination of how it's written and how Shatner acts it, it's all in the execution. And it's perfect. Yeah, Shatner is absolutely amazing in that scene. And he really, you know, he really earns his place amongst the great kind of pantheon of actors in Star Trek with, with that scene alone. And the fact that the writing at this point and this is episode 14, the fact that the writing is confident enough at this point to allow us to see that kind of doubt in our lead character, that kind of question, uh, or sort of questioning uh, aspect to him, that also indicates real trust in the audience by this point as well. They trust that we know this character well enough, that we've spent enough time with him, that we like him, uh, that we can be allowed to see some of that interiority that we can be trusted to think that even although he has this self-doubt even although he has these questions that doesn't undermine him as a character in fact it's the opposite it makes him stronger as a character and and the again we have the instant rapport between uh william shatner and deforest kelly which is just amazing and they those two just just radiate off the screen uh but this the, for for all that uh deforest kelly is is fantastic because of course he's deforest kelly like that scene belongs to shatner and it's that i think it's the trust that that gives the audience um uh, and the fact that they're prepared to uh the writers are prepared to have that come along at this point i i think is is honestly quite brave again you know we often talk about star trek having its roots in, in westerns and stuff and a lot of westerns could be subversive a lot of them could have like questioning the characters but we're a long long way from kind of like the 70s anti-westerns coming along we're a long way from from all that kind of stuff and so to have a character like this sort of be self-questioning in this way is is sort of genuinely helping to sort of 
push forward the barriers of what kind of 1960s U.S. television could get away with. And then, uh, I mean, it goes without saying, DeForest Kelly in that scene is incredible as well. <laughs> oh, yeah, I, I, don't, I don't in any way want to undercut my appreciation of DeForest <laughs> Kelly, but he, you know how much I love him, so that's clear. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah that I, could be a very you know, cheesy speech, like ending with don't destroy the one called Kirk, but he gives it that gravitas mm. um, and real emotion. It's like, this isn't a guy trying to buck up a, his commander. This is a guy trying to encourage his friend. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's both of those at once. It's like, I'm going to say something that my commander needs to hear, but I'm going to say something my friend needs to hear as well. And mm-hmm. it really walks that fine balance between the professional and personal obligations and relationships that Kirk and McCoy have that whole scene. I mean, it's just a breathtaking scene. I don't know what else to say about it. It's just, <laughs> it's, it's what really, it's one of, I guess, a several scenes that really bring it all together. I mean, you can't really point to one. Um, we've already talked about a couple already, but like, this like just the basic beats of this episode all the submarine combat stuff is so good it's these character moments that truly elevate it to the pantheon it is like the the attention to how these characters would think and how they would act and what makes them unique like you can write the most brilliantly staged and scripted battle in the world but to ground it in the characters that's what makes it last for uh, like, what is it? Where we're at now, like 40, 60, 60 years, almost 55, I think. Well, I don't want to do the math, but you get it. It's just, <laughs> uh, yeah, it's just a jaw-dropping um, work. And all the characters benefit here. One of the great yes. other things uh, from this is that we get to see some real work from the peripheral characters as well. You know, that moment where Ahura just takes the helm. No biggie, you know, like like she can do that, and it's it's just like lovely to see the way that uh, Uhura is treated in this episode, which is to say, like everyone else, um, and you know, obviously she's she's uh, you know she's a second string character like Scotty and and Sulu, but you know she has this opportunity to be able to step up, and you can again, you just see how good Michelle Nicole is. Like, just she even just when she's in the background of a scene when like this, the camera is like focused on Spock and he's delivering some exposition or, or whatever it is and she's just back there getting on with what she's getting on with and she's great and then she has to step up and she just takes control of the helm and our so now navigation and you know she's sitting next to Sulu absolutely belongs there competent you know talented officer who can just do her job nothing said about it no comment no question not even a raised eyebrow and it's just lovely to see the character treated that way we've had plenty of episodes up till this point where it has just been hailing frequencies open captain and she does get that line as well because of course she does but you know she's also (laughs) so so much more than that like sulu gets the same as well there's a a scene where um uh sulu is following kirk down a corridor i think about halfway through the episode and again like you just get to see how good george takai is because he's not doing anything other than being this character following his captain but he's intense and he's focused and it's just like it's it's a lovely kind of non-verbal performance and we get that again and again with all these kind of secondary characters in the in the episode it's it's such a 
it's such a great thing that they also get attention paid to them, even although, you know, obviously the main focus is is, is elsewhere. It's it's just brilliant. I mean, I'm going to go back to this is when Star Trek became Star Trek. Her us, Sulu and Scotty all have great things to do. And yeah, I, I, I back to Sulu. I love the scene when they're trying to mirror the ship and uh, trying to cloak their position. And Kirk is just like hovering over Sulu and Sulu is just like, like Takei projects professionalism so well, just just pushing the buttons that make the ship turn when the ship turns, and it is gripping television. And I think the scene in the conference room where sort of Uhura sort of has the con, so she's not there, but everyone else, and including Styles, this episode are there. They're all talking about what they're going to do, and Styles is going we need to destroy them and spock agrees with him and the way everyone plays their reaction to spock mm-hmm. saying like yeah styles is right we need to destroy them is a really good moment <laughs> um, that whole scene is terrific it just feels like a very mo- ahead of its time modern way of acting where it's more about the reaction than the action um i mean not uh, like I don't want to tangent too hard on this, but I think a lot of my favorite shows this year, um, like Andor and House of the Dragon, are the ones that come first to mine, uh, mine so much dramatic material, not out of actors doing something, but out of how they react to what's happening around them. And then you go back to Star Trek and the 60s television, and it's like, obviously, it's not like we have invented the idea of the reaction shot. It's suddenly <laughs> existed by the 60s. But you can sort of tell it's just like a, I don't know. There's just a little less nuance in Star Trek and and, and in the Twilight Zone, whatever other limited 60s television I've seen, just because I think it's a new medium that people are still working out how to write for. But Balance of Terror, I mean, it goes back to what you were saying much earlier, Chris. It feels like it could have been written yesterday because it is living in that nuance and those reactions and how the characters are interacting with the story rather than just driving the story. So I do want to raise a, a question now mm. and a point of comparison. Um, so uh, playing a big role in this episode is one Lieutenant Styles, who mm. is here to be the racist. Yeah. Like, that is his role. He is here to be the guy who is suspicious and paranoid of Spock and then learns his lesson at the end of the episode. Uh, We never see him before this episode. And as I recall, we don't see him again after this. And now I'm going to bring in a point of comparison. So in its season, first season finale, um, Star Trek Strange New Worlds does sort of a a take on this episode where it's like, what if Pike had been in command? And it was the crew of Strange New Worlds doing this episode. And in that episode, uh, the character Ortegas, who has been a series regular, is the one uh, who is taking on the Styles role of being the racist. <laughs> And so my question is, does this role work better or worse if it's someone we know 
or if it's someone who is just written to exist in that role for this episode. And I think similarly, the married couple in this were just meeting them for the first time as well. Whereas I think a, a, a show nowadays would build up to that and have their relationship. Right. Yeah. I think it's, it's very different in terms of how 60s Trek would handle that kind of, those kinds of role, those kinds of side roles with how modern day Trek handles it and which works more effectively for this story, do you think? I think I want to sideline the married couple because we haven't brought them up at all yet. And I think yeah. maybe that's their own section. But I think with the Silas Ortega question, um, I'm, I guess my answer is neither <laughs> works for various <laughs> reasons. Um, I think the version of this that works the best is... I'm sorry to throw Scotty on the best. Well, let's say Scotty. I think you have a regular character who has only been on the show for like 13 episodes kind of in the background has these mm -hmm. prejudices and gets to overcome them, which I guess you could say the same for Ortegas too, except the difference mm -hmm. is in that version, Ortegas has been with the Enterprise for a decade. How is she <laughs> not <laughs> had her mind expanded yet? Um, mm -hmm. And also we sort of barely know Ortegas and that kind of hurts her as well because then that sort of dominates her person. She might as well be a Silas for the fleeting moments we get of her in season one. I think it needs to be both an A, more established character than even Ortegas, and B, but one with less history, like unlike Ortegas in that version. Like I, if you did the story set present day Strange New Worlds and had seeded, I guess also the problem is that you we didn't seed this distrust of Ortegas at any point previous in the season. And it feels like it comes out of nowhere for her. And it's like, well, we need her to do something. It's just it's kind of a damaging characterization for her in that episode. Whereas Silas, because he's a one-off, he at least gets sort of the pass. You can like pass the buck to him and it doesn't damage any lasting characterization. Um, but yeah, I think, I do think it's a little weaker for having a one-off just pop in, um, be the central point of a very, of a effective, but I'll didactic subplot for sure and uh pop out like obviously i think the ideal version is you do it with an established character but i think silas i would say silas is better than ortegas i'll give a definitive answer because <laughs> the ortegas version just it just kind of screws the character too much it's it doesn't land and that is missing that kind of character arc with an established character is more damaging to a show than missing it with a one-off character absolutely yeah, I would go along with that. I, I definitely think Styles is the most effective of, of the two, partly because Ortegas is pretty much the weakest character on Strange New Worlds because just never given anything to do. Um, but also, even at this point, um, which is 14 episodes into the original series' first season, um, we've had these kind of one-shot characters before who come in, make their didactic point about this week's episode, and then, you know, are never heard from again. Um, so that's kind of already established as part of what Star Trek does. Um, and there'll be plenty of other examples of it going forward as well. So, yeah, I think I think having Styles come in, be the racist, and then, you know, I, I mean, if there's any flaw in this episode, it's kind of like his repentance at the end feels mm -hmm. a bit... Mm -hmm 
a bit clunky. Oh, right. I, I, I'm <laughs> definitely completely racist. But oh, like, like, yeah, like Spock saved me, so it's all good. Um, I'm <laughs> not sure that's how racism really works. But okay, we've got 50 minutes to get through, and we, we have to make our point. So, like, fine. He survived some, um, some pink smoke, and that. Yeah, it's happy, is. So it is quite funny in that scene how he sends Spock out and then like five seconds later the pink smoke <laughs> yeah. is just like me. immediate karma. Yeah. <laughs> like... yeah. It is didactic. It is like probably the weakest link of this episode, but I still think it's effective. It gets its point across very clearly and I don't think it doesn't make me cringe. It doesn't make me roll my eyes, which I think for a storyline this like simplistic about this major like issue, it's like I think is impressive in and of itself. But I, I think there's there's a clarity to it, I think, in its simplicity, rather than just like a clicheness to it. And that's a very fine line I recognize. Um and could be down to just preference. It's I would I would fully not be surprised if someone did watch this episode and think that was a very cringe inducing storyline. But I, I think just keeping it simple, effective, and weaved into the rest of the thing that's going on, it manages to get its point across in a really good way. Um, yeah, I, I, I do ultimately like this storyline and think it enriches the episode for it. Just to pick up on oh, something yeah. you mentioned before, Kev, um, when you were talking about Ortegas and the fact that um, the racism in Strange New Worlds kind of just pretty much, you know, comes from nowhere and... and goes there too um i mean i think that is a big problem with the ortega storyline in um a quality of mercy the strange new worlds episode um what i think is interesting about styles is that they actually bother to give him a line um mm. about the fact that oh it was his father or his grandfather that was killed in the original yeah. uh wars and then kirk says you know their wars mister not yours but at least there's an attempt to just he's not just like racism racist because like well we need a racist in this episode there is some kind of attempt not to justify it or excuse it but to, to make it function as part of the character like he has history with the romulans it may be history which is through his family and from a couple of generations ago, but there is still, he's given a reason to be the one who's prejudiced in this rather than it just sort of emerging as, you know, mm, space racism is bad. And that also helps. Like, honestly, that's a bit more than Ortegas gets in Strange New Worlds. That's, and that it, it does make a difference because he's not just this kind of like flatly programmatic character. He's not just there to only be the racist one. So even if it is only a couple of lines, you know, about his family history and then Kirk sort of quietly but firmly putting him in his place, uh, at least it's there. It, it does help to give the character just that little bit extra dimension. Yeah, no, like, when I say it feels like this episode could have been written yesterday, I think one of the most surprising aspects of that is that the Styles subplot, for all that it is the clunkiest part of the episode, is, it still goes down pretty smoothly, right. uh, all things considered. And I think giving it that justification just makes it all the more relevant, like, Unfortunately, racism still exists today, you know? it's um, And I think it's, like, fine. I think having that sort of justification behind it and get, enriching his character in that way, it just, it becomes a character-based decision rather than this is the point we're making-based decision. Um, yeah. I think that is the key when you're dealing with these sort of societal issues that becomes so key 
is making the way characters that tackle them come from the character and not from the point the writer is trying to make. Yeah, yeah. And, like, in terms of, like, the line he gives about his family history, like, he's, like, when he says it, he's, like, it's not, like, he mentions not just, like, one relative, but several relatives having been in the military at Mm. that time. So it's, like, okay, this guy is from a military family. This isn't just, like, one ancestor who died heroically. This is part of a military family legacy that... (laughs) styles is sort of trying to live up to and clearly the family legends are about how they all fought in this horrible romulan war mm-hmm. so so it's a it's a smart grounding um even if the resolution is again like oh spock saved me from the pink smoke so i have been cured of all my ills right <laughs> and i think it is significant that it's not treated as cured of all my ills, but it's treated as yeah. the start of a dialogue of a moment of regret and uh, maybe rethinking something rather than like this big protestation of, Oh, I'm, I've been so wrong. Yeah. And it does, it does contrast very strongly with the Romulans as well, because, you know, over in the Romulan ship, we see them actively, unable to kind of overcome the prejudice for all that Mark Leonard's character is kind of war weary and fed up. Like he still falls in line. The death of the centurion, which is another Mm -hmm. lovely performance uh, by John Warburton, which is, you know, this much, much older character. I don't, I don't think we've seen a character that old in Star Trek up to this point, but that also like marks him out. And, you know, he seems to be compassionate, but again, falls into line everybody in the romulan ship does that they all fall into line and they can't break out of their patterns of behavior and so that's ultimately what dooms them whereas on the enterprise we get to see uh with styles that he can make progress okay maybe it's a bit clunky but nevertheless he can make progress and you know uh, that's the ship that survives that's the ship who you know is the one that learned their lesson that doesn't just repeat the same uh the same mistakes from history and that's quite understated i think in the final script i don't think that the the script does a lot to kind of draw those direct comparisons i think it just lets them stand but i also think it's sort of more effective for that i think the fact that it's just you you know it allows the audience the intelligence to be able to to draw those parallels between the 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 two different crews yeah it's and then like putting the centurion in the debris field is just such a devastating move it's just Mm -hmm. uh, like do what you have to do for the war i mean again it goes back to sort of war the dehumanizing effect of it you have to do terrible things to your friend's corpse in order to win and then you don't even win (laughs) yeah and there's also like the edge of like how politics and ambition play into war over on the Romulan ship that sort of is it like Spock isn't angling for Kirk's chair in the same way that you know the commander's chair is being implicitly questioned over on the Romulan ship of the Centurion Mm -hmm. saying you know that guy has powerful friends like with the Praetor Um. yeah it's it's kind of Again, understated, not explicitly stated, but why they win. Because Kirk has uh, McCoy and Spock as, like, counsels. They're not 
there's no ego on that ship. They are like everyone, like and then Uhura and Sulu and Scotty are also all like they they all work as a team. And Kirk may be the captain, but he is not. He doesn't see himself as the most important person. He has the self doubt. He's willing to go to McCoy for counsel. Um, Spock is willing to put himself on the line for the person who is racist towards him. <laughs> Just all these little things that show that the people in charge on that ship are looking out for each other and Mm -hmm. they know they're working together for the greater purpose. And that is kind of what makes the enterprise victorious in the end of the day is that Spock is willing to put himself on the line for this person who is cruel to him. And that's how they win. It it, it is an astonishing moment um, that, um, that kind of putting his life in the line thing. And I think uh, uh, Paul Schneider, who's the writer, um, does really tap into so many things that are just so fundamental to the way that Star Trek functions and the way uh, that the show exists. And yet he's not a writer with much of a, I should say not much of a career. That's not, that's mm-hmm. not true. He wrote dozens of episodes of television, but it's a whole pulpy genre stuff. Now there's not much about his, um, his kind of filmography that you would read to think, Oh, right. Like this guy wrote, something so kind of iconic and so kind of amazing you know it's all dr kildare and bonanza okay fair sure enough star trek ironside um god help us buck rogers in the 25th century i mean it's not a, <laughs> it's not a roll call of great you know great television um and yet just for this one moment i mean you'll write another episode of star trek of course and we'll, we'll get to the squire of gothos in time but uh, you know just just for this one moment just for this one episode like you know, if this is your best work, you're good. You you know, you, you've mm-hmm. done all right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I think I also want to talk about the director, uh, Vincent McEvity, Mc- mm-hmm. who's director for Star Trek before and will again, but I don't think we've shouted him out in the past. Like, And he does such good work on this episode. It's just very mm-hmm. fun to look at his film filmography. After television, he goes up to film and does... Uh, the Million Dollar Duck, uh, two of the Herbie movies, the Apple Dumpling Gang rides again. Like a lot of these sort of uh, very cheesy 70s kids movies. And I mean, I don't have much faith in how they're directed, but maybe they are. Maybe there is a shot as striking as an out-of-focus Kirk about to console the grieving widow as is in the end of this episode. Like there is so many shots that are just staging and blocking a couple actors in a way that is so effective and dramatic and just visually pleasing oh yeah yeah no this is uh this is such a well-directed episode of television and going Mm -hmm. back to that conference room scene again and how he frames the different sides of it how who gets to sort of loom large in the frame who is more removed like where the camera is placed, who is getting the close-ups, when we're cutting between each uh, side of the table is all really well judged. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's incredibly considered. And again, you know, when you have a, a an episode like this, which is so dependent on um, silence and so dependent on on stillness, you have to have a director who knows how to... I was going to say milk. That's not 
quite the right word, but who knows how to milk it? Who knows how to get those kind of performances out of his actors and who knows how to position and place things for, um, for maximum kind of uh, tension, for maximum build, for maximum drama. I think it's very interesting that we do get a lot of, uh, you know, quite fluid shots on the Enterprise. Even when, when like Spock is, is like working away, basically changing a fuse for the phasers um and and we get it and he kind of reaches up just when he's doing his little like oh whoops accidentally alerted the enemy ship um a lovely moment um and the camera kind of swings up and it kind of follows spock's hand as it's sort of groping around the console and and it's very it's very kind of understated it's not like a flashy moment but it does just have that kind of like it, it helps to pull you into the drama, even when you don't know what's, you know, immediately about to happen. Uh, whereas the blocking on the Romulan ship is much sort of much more kind of head on. I know it's a much smaller set. I understand there are physical limitations and physical constraints, but it also does feel like a, a specific choice. You know, there's that, you know, things are more static and that's logical because that's how we're being encouraged to see the Romulans. They are a fixed point. They have a fixed point of view that they cannot break out of. Things are more fluid. Things can develop in the Enterprise. And therefore, we have these kind of more fluid shots, which which help kind of pull you into that side of the equation as well. I think I want to bring up the wedding subplot now. I've, I've put it off a couple of <laughs> times, but it's, it's such a great little runner. Um, it's an incredible cold open. I love Kirk's line about uh, mm-hmm. Like since the days of the first vessels, the privilege every captain gets to have is is just like a very mm-hmm. warm moment from him. That we're that we have like the moment of warning before that is very well staged. It's like a great little bit of foreshadowing that like he's doing the ceremony with the back of his mind, knowing that this might be the last little moment of happiness we have for a little while, and um there and then. And then as soon as you have the scene between Tomlinson and uh, Martin, um, just making sure I got those names right, but it's, um, he's, uh, yeah, it's very, like, you know, one of them is doomed. It's it's such a mm-hmm. nice, very sweet moment of um, just, oh, happy wedding day almost. Oh, well, stay safe out there. All right, for now, I'm still your commander. Um, yeah, and a little bit of a 60s, uh, moment there, but you know, you, it still it still manages to pull through. It still manages to land, and uh, like it, it's such a cute scene between them that you kind of know where this is heading, and it still makes that tragedy hit all the harder. That final scene, like I, I talked about earlier, how Kirk is just—it's like one of the couple cracks in his bravado he gets in this episode. Uh, the "it never makes any sense" line. And the aforementioned like staging and lighting of it, it's just such a hammer drop of a moment where it's, I mean, one of the older cliches in the book as well. We won, but at what cost? And yet it's still just so, it bowls me over. It's so effective. Yeah. And then I, I love how this episode ends sort of after that, where Martine is like, I'll be fine and leaves Kirk. And then we stay with Kirk and we mm-hmm. get this sort of fluid shot of him walking out of the sort of the chapel or to you know the to where they were going to hold the wedding and you're still getting like like she may be fine he might not be like he is still playing the weight of this day 
and he isn't like just back to well back to work he is really still thinking he like you can tell he's not gonna forget what's happened here he's gonna be carrying this for a while yeah it's another lovely non-verbal performance from shatner just like walking down a corridor and struggling to kind of like put on the the mantle or put on the coat of command again because once he steps out of the chapel he can't be he can't be the one with the vulnerabilities he can't be the guy that's that's opened up he has to be the strong commander because people look up to him and that scene in the even the fact that there's a chapel is kind of it's kind of weird for star trek because you know gene roddenberry was such an atheist he was a you know really committed mm-hmm. kind of anti-religious sort of guy and the fact that the um enterprise as a chapel is kind of an odd little detail which i mean i i don't really have any comment to make on it other than to observe that it, observe it as a fact but uh but yeah again it's another lovely performance from shatner as he just he just has to put himself back together again and get on with stuff and yeah yeah the woman whose uh whose uh, uh husband or husband to be is dead she's fine but the captain who's responsible for keeping everybody else alive yeah that might be a different that might be a different call um that's again i think an incredibly brave thing to do with your lead character for kind of a mid-60s tv show it, it really deserves all the credit it's yeah i mean brave is just the right word like like you said it's there's just so much going on beneath the surface in this episode and it, it's never holding your hand it's never uh and i guess maybe outside of some of the style scenes but it's like <laughs> yeah it, it it gets its points across so clearly without anyone coming out and spelling what they are even the styles things i mean styles never says oh i was wrong to doubt you spock he just has the sort of quiet moment of sort of realization and um yeah it's just so like it's just so naturalistic in a way we haven't really seen this show do up to this point while still being it's very theatrical over the top self and it, it does feel like the simpsons quote you want a grounded down-to-earth drama with magic robots i, I wish i could pull the exact <laughs> line but it's it's really doing the whole spectrum of obvious and subtlety in the ways that are mm-hmm. that hit exactly right yeah yeah and to and to get back to that last moment uh of kirk sort of juggling to pull himself back together it gets to another way of of parallelism because who else have we seen in this episode mm-hmm. have that kind of reaction the romulan commander so it's like it's not just right. that the two of them understand each other tactically it's that they both feel this same weight which is also in the 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 kirk mccoy scene as well that like the two of them both are very aware of the cost of what they are doing and that if they survive there's going to be ramifications afterwards and they're not perhaps certain they can deal with those um so it's not just that they understand each other as soldiers they understand each other emotionally yeah and it's i think this is going back to sort of the first thing we talked about it's that emotional bond that is never stated as such but is so key to this episode um i guess i guess sort of stated as such we have the in a different alley could have called you friend of course and yeah but just like letting the air out of the balloon at just the last moment before 
it's over is just it's so powerful and it's yeah it's just it's incredible that i mean especially in the middle of the cold war that you would make a <laughs> i mean i guess it's far from the first or last cold war piece of media to be like why are we maybe we're not so different after all but it's still a, it's a message that will ring true in any age i think and i think it has an extra relevance because of what was going on at the time uh i mean just the one thing that i would that i just want to shout out and it's more of an every episode of this show thing to to shout out um which is just that as a music guy i just want to shout out that initial the initial alexander courage fanfare that don da da don don bum 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 is so good because it it just immediately sets this enormous scope that fanfare tells you you're going on a huge journey it mm-hmm. sh- it like the shape of it shows like this is what they are aspiring to they are taking this huge musical leap to parallel the sort of the literal leaps into the unknown that uh the crew is going to take it just immediately tells you what this show is about oh yeah i mean we haven't talked about the score of the music much on any of these previous episodes i mean maybe this is me being not a big music head but i've never found the uh incidental background music to be that gripping or notable but that fanfare i mean iconic for a reason and for the reasons you pointed out so clearly i don't have anything to add it's just yeah it's it's a perfect like opening tune for this show yeah and i think that's that's fair about the sort of the incidental music like a lot of the moments where i noticed it this episode were when it would reuse the fan it would sort of play with the fanfare a bit or mm-hmm. there was some good like danger music uh, other place but i think that that fanfare just so immediately and simply tells the story of what you're about to witness yep couldn't agree more and i think um i think what we have witnessed is a a genuinely astonishing piece of television um mm-hmm. yeah i think we can probably maybe probably move towards giving this a score now so uh chris out of 10 what would you what would you care to give this you know what I'm wavering between a a 9.5 out of 10 and a 10 out of 10, but let's go for the full 10. Like the, whatever weaknesses there are in this episode are more than matched by the sort of the strengths and how strongly it has stood up over all these years, how it has endured. And yeah, this is just an extraordinary episode of television. Okay, full 10 out of 10. Mm-hmm. Kev. Mm-hmm. If I don't give this a 10, what am I going to give a 10? That's just how I think it's like <laughs> like what what else could there poss- else could there possibly be? I don't know. Maybe I'll eat my words later down the road, but yeah, this is a 10. Okay. So we have two 10s. I'm going to give it dramatic pause. <laughs> a 10. Yeah. Full clean sweep. Um, I think this is this is. I'm confident to say that this is the only episode we've given uh, any anybody has given a ten to so far, right? Uh, through the series. Um, 
but it fully earns it. You know, there's a reason that this is one of the most iconic episodes. I hate the word iconic, but really, I don't know what other one to use at the moment. Uh, is a reason that I, you know, this is so iconic. There's a reason that lines in it still resonate all this time later. There's a reason that Strange New Worlds went back to it um, to revisit it and try and give it an alternative perspective. It's basically perfect. There's basically mm-hmm. nothing to criticize here. It's just an astonishing piece of television. And it's also, I think, you know, we were talking, I think have said earlier about how this is the episode where Star Trek became Star Trek. It's like, this is the episode that shows what this show can be, that shows what this franchise can be. And if that doesn't earn a 10, what does? Well, absolutely. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. And I think probably we can draw our conversation for balance of terror to a close and move on to recommendations uh so chris you're a guest we shall start with you yourself um what would you care to recommend <sighs> let me see what would i care to recommend um <laughs> yeah i'm going back and well you know what uh we're just coming off a of Halloween the week. Uh, we recorded this, and so I did a delightful uh, sort of, I guess, two-day double feature of watching the original Frankenstein with friends, including Kev, and then mm-hmm. the next night watching uh, Bride of Frankenstein, which is a rewatch, uh, and great movies. Like, you know, like they just they get in, they get out, both have incredible, like wild meta introductions where it's like, we're going to scare you. We're going to scare you real good. And um, and they're also just such an interesting window into how quickly Hollywood was changing with like Frankenstein doesn't have a musical score. Bride of Frankenstein incredible musical score because that's how like even though they're like a year apart in because that's how thing quickly things were changing in the 30s and yeah great films go watch them <laughs> i can i mean, obviously i can speak to that former one because i was watching frankenstein for the first time that halloween weekend i had just never gone around to it before but yeah um james whale taught, take good director still need to watch bride maybe next halloween or maybe we'll get to it even sooner but yeah it's it's Whale's imagery is so striking. Karloff, of course, I mean, obviously, he's so good. And then all the other, like, peer, like actors of the era around him are also just, like, really acting their heart out. Uh, even even if it's the story is kind of janky in that very 30s way, um, it's it's still, like, such a, it's such a monumental work. You understand why it stands the test of time pretty much from the word go it's a really remarkable movie fantastic thank you very much um yeah obviously i'm not going to disagree with the quality of frankenstein and Frank and frankenstein <laughs> um yep they're great i i i fully co-sign on, on all of that uh kev what would you like to give us this week all right so when we're recording this five episodes of the show have aired and another six or seven will have aired by the time this episode comes out so that's why I'm always like a little reluctant to do TV shows because who knows where, will, where the twist will go. But hopefully this still <laughs> holds up. And I'm going to recommend the anime Mobile Suit Gundam The Witch from Mercury. I have never seen a Gundam show before. I watched this because a friend was like, 
looking for friends who want to discuss it. And I asked, would I like this? And he was like, yeah, give it a shot. And I was sort of drawn into that sort of group discussion of it. And it's become up there with Andor and Interview with the Vampire as like the shows I am excited about week to week, just in terms of every episode, I am just buzzing with excitement and can't wait to see where it goes next. Um, I would say, again, I mean, as a case for me, you haven't seen a Gundam show, which you may recognize the name. It is like the iconic humans piloting a giant robot anime. Um, it's featured like in a lot of different pop culture references. And it's, it's, it's very much anthology-ish. There's some of the series are in continuity. This is one that is out of continuity, so you can just jump right in. It's its original story that happens to also feature giant robots that you can buy models of. <laughs> and um, like I said, five episodes so far, plus a prologue episode I recommend watching, even though its relevance isn't quite apparent yet. But in terms of the five present-day set episodes, it's about... Uh, high school aged girl Suleta who who lives on Mercury and Earth uh, Earth colony there and basically the equivalent to the boonies for this very solar system colonized society um, she goes to an academy in space for learning how to pilot giant robots of course as you do and it becomes very apparent that a the giant robot she brought to school with her is very special and has a lot of special properties to it that people are interested in and b she winds up accidentally picking a fight with the biggest jerk in the school who's like the team captain or whatever. Um, I guess not much of a spoiler to say she wins, but the consequences of her winning that duel just start reverberating throughout the series in ways that are very unexpected, that are very fun. And it's like this perfect mix of like high school drama, gossip girl kind of like intrigue and fun with like heavy handed like politics and war um games and like these things in at least in these early episodes brewing behind the scenes of these larger machinations and it's there's also a lot of romance that is really good queer romance is very front and center in this show which is very fun and also there are at least once every two episodes i think of the five there's it's happened three times uh giant robots that fight each other and it's very cool and very fun to watch so it's a lot going for it I think the episodic construction is very powerful. Like every episode is advancing storylines, is introducing and deepening characters. And also just as an episode is so satisfying. I just think it's so remarkable in this day and age, I think where we're in the age of like peak TV and content streams and it's all one 10 episode slurry. Every episode of this show ends with some dramatic moment. That might not even be a twist, just something that, contextualizes something or is just really fun to watch and it's just always like by the end i just want to stand up and cheer and pace and just think about what a great show that was and that they've done it five times in a row now is just nothing short of remarkable i think it's it's really quickly becoming just something i am so ecstatic to watch every week in just how it's building how it's evolving and how every episode leaves me with like a little bit of a buzz afterwards. So that is Gundam, the witch from Mercury. And yeah, I highly recommend it. Uh, I think it's only available on Crunchyroll in the U S a very specialized subscription, but anime has always one of the easier things to find elsewhere. And I, re if you don't want to pay for Crunchyroll, I recommend doing so and experiencing this great story. 
Well, you dance shown that very delicately, I must say. <laughs> uh, excellent, fantastic. Thank you very much. Um, I mean, my recommendation seems a bit a bit a bit limp after all that. That, that sounds wonderful. But I'm going to recommend Pennyworth, um, or as it's now known, Pennyworth: The Origin of Batman's Butler. For some reason, um, it's a stupid show that I love. And that's the best recommendation I have for it. It's ridiculous in absolutely all the right ways. It is silly. It does not in any way, shape, or form take itself seriously. Uh, but it's still capable of milking good drama. Um, it's very much kind of an alternative history kind of thing. And if alternatively history, alternative history is immediately making you think of things like um, uh, For All Mankind and Apple TV, don't. Because it is not that at all. It is not serious. <laughs> it is absolutely ludicrous. Um, but it, again, it's ludicrous in all the right ways. It feels like a comic book, but on telly. And that's, I really mean that as a, a fantastic compliment. Um, it's such a... It's such a daft show. And I just love it. Uh, Jack Bannon is fantastic as, as uh, Alfred. Um, it's although allegedly it's a prequel to Gotham. Uh, I mean, it's not. Uh, it's just not. It's just a show that exists in its own. So you don't need to have seen a frame of Batman. You don't need to have any kind of knowledge of it. It's just this kind of really cool kind of alternative history version of uh, of of this character. It's uh, it's set in London, and. Um, it's got a, a universally great uh, supporting cast. Uh, Paloma Faith is really good in it. And I never thought, oh, Paloma Faith is a good actor, is words that would ever leave my mouth. But here we are. They have. <laughs> and she is. Um, it's uh, Ryan Fletcher, who plays David Boy. Uh, fantastic as well. Uh, the real kind of MPV of the third series, which I guess is about halfway through. or uh, Maybe it'll be over by the time. Uh, by the time this broadcast, but uh, the real MVP of the third season is is uh, is his mum, Alfred's mum, and again, not really words I thought would be escaping my mouth. But uh, Dorothy Atkinson, who plays Mary Pennyworth, is just brilliant as well. Um, the first couple of seasons are are um, sort of convinced, are sort of uh, occupied with a, a sort of fictional English civil war which breaks out in the nineteen sixties uh, against a sort of fascist. Uh, Raven Society, so it, it's very much that kind of, you know, it could have happened here sort of thing, uh, but it kind of mostly avoids all the sort of usual cliches of uh, of kind of, you know, England, but fascist and uh, there's, yeah, there's great comic book characters in it, there's great kind of ridiculous things, there's family drama, it's just a, a, like a big mess uh, the Prime Minister uh, wait, this is a weird thing to say because until like two or three weeks ago uh, the idea of having uh, a, a, a prime minister who was Asian in the UK was utterly ridiculous. Uh, and one of the nice things about uh, uh, Pennyworth is that it has uh, it has an Asian prime minister, Victor Aziz, who's played by uh, Ramon uh, Tikaram or Tikaram. I'm not exactly sure of the pronunciation, so I do apologize for that. Uh, but he's great. He's such a it's a minor role, but he's really, really good in it. Um, and yet, and yet, unexpectedly, we now have a, a, an Asian prime minister in the UK, which is both great and also terrible because he's a Tory and the Tories are awful. Sorry, don't mean to get political. We'll just move on from that. Anyway, it's just a great show. I thoroughly recommend it. It is absolutely, um, I, I don't know. I don't know what the right adjective for it is. It's just great. Go watch it. You'll have fun. 
um, I don't know if this is a spoiler, but I pulled up on Wikipedia, and I'm delighted by the fact that it's not just a prequel to Gotham, but also to V for Vendetta somehow. Oh, yeah, allegedly. <laughs> None of that makes the slightest bit of difference. I mean, I, I love the gusto, but yeah, I mean... You gusto is this... a perfect word for this, by the way. That's exactly... That's the adjective I'm looking for. Gusto. Yeah, you recommended this to me before. It's never left my brain, and now it's on HBO in the U.S. instead of Epics, whatever that is. <laughs> I'm going to. <laughs> I should definitely uh, give it give it some time. It sounds very fun. It it really is. Um, but anyway, I think we can probably we can probably leave things there for the time being and move on to plugs. Um, so, Chris, what would you like to plug? Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, I have been uh, Chris Dole. You can find me on. Twitter at at crystal eight six if Twitter still exists when this episode <laughs> comes out. Um, and let's see, I'm the co-creator of Arden, a fiction podcast where two women try not to fall in love with each other while they solve cold cases together. First two seasons and a spin-off miniseries out now. Third season, hopefully coming 2023. Um that we're we're working hard on that now. I'm also uh, the creator of Human Resources, a comedy about an HR worker who works for the uh, conspiracy that runs the world. That's available exclusively. Uh, it's a special available exclusively on the Apollo uh, podcasting app. And I'm also the creator of My Big Score, a podcast where I talk to different. Uh, creators uh writers directors uh actors sound designers other podcasters about uh the film score that matters to them um and that's available on all podcast apps as well i mean this will be dropping a little bit right before christmas and i think you told me that's when my episode on a artificial intelligence is also dropping so a little bit of synergy that is correct yeah if you want to hear uh, Kev and myself talk about how brutally John Williams parodies himself in <laughs> that movie to devastating emotional effect. Uh, yeah, hop on over to my big score. Awesome. Well, yeah, you can find uh, Talking Trek to You at Talk Trek to You on Twitter. Um, JG and I also have multiple podcasts. Uh, oh, I have half of another podcast. I'm a frequent guest on the podcast Total Massacre, Rowan Kaiser's action movie podcast. JG has Beatles Stuffology, where he and Andrew Deacon go through the Beatles song by song. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Kev Kozer, K-E-V-K-O-E-S-E-R. And you can find more of JG's writings at www.jgmcquarrie.scott, J-G-M-C-Q-U-A-R-R-I-E.scott. Please like, rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast and whatever podcatcher you use to help other people find us. Fantastic. Thank you very much. And thank you for joining us this week, Chris. Absolutely. Such a pleasure. Fantastic. Lovely. And we will wrap things up there for now. Next week, oh good, we get to return to comedy in Star Trek, everybody's favorite, as we take a little shore leave. And as always, we hope you're going to join us for it. But until then, keep talking.